What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's impossible to stay neutral in the state of the world that we're in right now. History will reflect on, you know, what side people fell. There's, I think, been a much more explicit showing of how vast the support for abortion access is. The midterm elections, of course, reflected that very clearly. But even prior to that, we saw companies speaking up, employees demanding employers speak up. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Today's episode, Resilience Through a Regulatory Storm. My guest today launched her company to bring better access to care to women. She saw abortion clinics closing across the United States and simultaneously saw a boom in men's healthcare being delivered via the internet. Smooth, customer-friendly websites were selling everything from hair growth medications to erectile dysfunction ones. She thought, wow, she might be able to really change things. She started Hey Jane to offer medicine abortions online, and it's been a really rocky, fascinating ride. First, regulations for telehealth and mailing medications were in her way. This was before the pandemic, but then the pandemic helped ease those regulations. But then the Supreme Court decision on states' rights and abortion opened up a world of regulatory and legal challenges. I spoke with Kiki Friedman about her drive to create a company with a solid mission and how she convinced investors to come on board during an extremely politically divisive moment in time. And about the resilience that it required to lead her team through a constantly changing regulatory environment. But before Kiki was leading a fast-growing healthcare company into new territory, she was just a kid interested in, well, expanding preventative health access around the globe. I have a very vivid memory of watching a video in high school bio about um, the prevalence of malaria in, in parts of the world and how $5 bed nets could potentially prevent hundreds of thousands of childhood deaths per year. But I became obsessed with raising money for bed nets and trying to get more bed nets into the world. And so I think that was one of my first forays in trying to problem solve in, in that way. You did um, intend to get into nonprofits, I recall, but you sort of ended up at the opposite at Uber. Tell me about your time at Uber and and what you learned there that you took on with you. So it was a really interesting decision. I planned on going into international development in some way or another. Um, at the time, I saw that Uber drivers in New York were making over $75 an hour, which felt really compelling um, as a means of income creation relative to other opportunities that might exist for those folks at the time. I had an opportunity to join the team and was also given some intel that they would likely soon be launching in East Africa. That was really interesting to me. And it again just occurred to me that this could be a really interesting way of creating income opportunities that are really autonomous, that don't rely on medallion owners, as we saw in the New York model, for example. Um, to create um, sustainable income. And so I did take that opportunity. 
I started in New York, but fairly quickly got to move to Nairobi to launch the business there. The drivers in Kenya did end up making about four times the amount they were making prior to our launch. And so that was really rewarding to see. I definitely learned quite a bit through that experience. I would say the biggest was learning to navigate regulatory complexity in a high growth business, um, being able to identify opportunities for what you think the future is going to look like based off of consumer wants, as well as emerging technologies, and um, being able to apply that within regulatory frameworks. And I think that that's been extremely useful at Hugene. So what was your role going into uh, Nairobi at Uber? Launcher. So it was just two of us on the ground trying to make it happen. How many years were you there? Four years. When did you move on? You, um, you decided to enroll in Harvard Business School. Is that right? Yep. So after four years of Uber um, and filling a few different roles at the company, I decided to go to business school, really wanted the opportunity to learn more about business fundamentals, what it takes to be uh, a really good leader, also just following in the footsteps of some female founders that I had um, admired. And so I went to Harvard Business School in 2018, and that's uh, where I started Eugene. Yeah. Yeah. Where did the seeds of the idea come from for you? The idea came about from talking with some of my friends from undergraduate. I'd gone to school in St. Louis, Missouri. And Missouri at the time was one of six states in the country to have one abortion clinic left in the entire state. Um, it was close to school, so we would drive by it often. Of course, I had many friends um, you know, who'd visit the clinic for a variety of essential services, including abortion. That summer, that clinic was nearly shut down. So it would have become the first state uh, in the U.S. to have no abortion access at all since Roe v. Wade. And this just felt like an entirely dystopian possibility that that could be the case uh, in 2019. Of course, things have gotten quite a bit worse since then, but it just felt like this screaming problem to be solved. That summer, we were seeing a lot of other digital clinic models take off, but primarily serving issues affecting men. Um, and I just started thinking, you know, could this digital clinic model be a, a potential solution for safe, discreet, affordable abortion access? Right, right. If, if they're sending erectile dysfunction pills through the mail, why not medical abortion? Um, but the FDA did not necessarily permit that at the time. Is that right? That's right. So we started thinking about Hey Jane prior to the pandemic, when, of course, a lot of evolution took place uh, within telemedicine regulation. But at the time, it was not obvious whether this was permitted. So I spent a lot of time uh, combing through relevant state and federal regulations, looking at really detailed definitions of the word dispense, looking at comma placements and all of these things, trying to find a way to make it work. We did eventually land on an operating model that we believed to be compliant. However, fortunately, I would say the regulation shifted before we needed to, to test it out. I mean, at that time, I, I don't even think awareness of medical abortions was, I mean, it wasn't even a fraction of what it is today um, since the pandemic changed things um, and, and since the Supreme Court has changed things. Let's stay in that moment, though, for a minute. Um, so you wrote a business model at HBS. How did you talk to your professors about this? How did you get advice about this? This is not like launching a data <laughs> shoe company or eyeglasses company, right? Um, tell me about kind of the course of those discussions and the evolution of your idea. I would say that for the most part, the professors were were very supportive, if not slightly skeptical about the regulatory angle of it for good reason in retrospect. I think they really saw the the need for it, the potential for you know product market fit, so to speak. Um, they really helped guide us. 
uh, in setting what ended up being a really important course in deeply listening to our users. We spent almost a full year doing interviews and other user listening sessions to really develop a product that centers the patient in ways that we feel are pretty innovative. It remains, of course, a controversial issue. And I think people might have been a little bit surprised that we were taking it on. But ultimately, I think, you know, folks were were pretty supportive. Does any advice that you got at that time um, stick with you, whether it's good advice or bad or uh, encouraging or skeptical? I see a look on your face that that our listeners <laughs> won't be seeing that says there's more to this story. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you get a lot of advice at business school. I think a lot of people were encouraging of trying to take a slightly easier path forward that maybe didn't require tangling with some of these regulatory complexities. And I'm glad we disregarded uh, that advice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a million ways you could have gone, like just do birth control online, right? I mean, easy. Or I mean, I can't tell you how many startups they are selling face cream, right? Um, Initially, you know, when we were conceiving of Hey Jane, and this is still very much something we believe, abortion care affects one in four um, birthing people. It's something that is mainstream healthcare, but is currently treated in very much a silo. We're very committed to normalizing abortion care as part of mainstream healthcare. And as part of that, we did have some cheeky ideas around perhaps uh, selling additionally skin cream and eyelash (laughs) (laughs) alongside abortion care. And we got some advice from a professor that that might be taking it a a little too far in the wrong direction. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Amazing. So the pandemic happened and then you launched. Tell me about the timeline of of kind of what happened next in building the business. How how did you initially fund your idea and and how long did it take to sort of get the all of the building blocks in place to actually launch? Yeah, it took quite a bit of time. You know, as you can imagine, data security was of the utmost importance here and something we wanted to make sure was extremely buttoned up before we went live. So we spent about a year building the product before launching it to any users. The product being the website and the infrastructure of healthcare providers. Exactly. Yep. How we store all of the patient information and manage the clinical workflows, all of that. During that year, the regulations were changing more or less monthly as they bounced through the the court system. And so we had to continually modify our plans in accordance with them. There was a pretty dramatic moment close to when we were getting ready to launch where there had been a temporary COVID exemption in place around mailing the abortion pill, which is the crux of, of what we do. And we were waiting for that decision on pins and needles for many, many weeks. And one Friday, uh, we were expecting the ruling to come out the following week. It was the day that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Uh. She was essentially going to be what we thought would likely be the tiebreaker in that decision. And it hit us pretty hard on a personal level, the loss of, you know, this um, incredibly admirable person and, of course, understanding the implications for our model. That night also was the first time I ever experienced an earthquake in LA. And I think it was sort of symbolic in the change that was to come um, at, at the Supreme Court level. We did finally launch in January um, of 2021 and, you know, have sort of been off to the races since continuing, of course, to uh, continually modify what we're doing in light of macro changes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how did you fund the initial launch? I want to talk about fundraising as it's progressed, you know, since all of the big changes, but let's talk about just that first step um, and building your initial team. Um, How did you get that kind of core footing in place? 
So the very first funding that we got, we got a little bit through school and through sort of studio student oriented VCs. And then we got a grant actually from Plan C, which is a wonderful nonprofit doing awareness work in this space. Um, they've been doing uh, fantastic advocacy around telemedicine abortion for a long time. I think, you know, we're excited to see someone implementing the model. And so in building the initial team, I knew very much that I wanted to uh, supplement uh, my own skills, you know, which have been in in operations and sort of on the business side of things. I absolutely knew that I wanted a clinical co-founder to build that expertise into sort of the fabric of our model and our culture. So I just did a lot of cold calling um, to experts in the space until I was eventually connected with my co-founder, Kate. She was working at the time in the incarceral system in New York doing health and justice work there and had a depth of experience in abortion care. Um, So eventually got her to start working part-time and eventually full-time with us. And um, it was absolutely incredible to have her expertise. And then I also wanted someone to make sure people knew about the product, uh, bring on a really skilled marketer. And for that, I actually reconnected with a childhood friend on New Year's Eve um, back in Miami, uh, Gabby, and she's been part of the team ever since. Oh, that's great. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting you bring up marketing. Um, your, your website looks like something that would be very familiar to any modern consumer. It's bright. It's approachable. It just has plain language on the homepage explaining what you do in a nice font. Tell me more about the approach there. Absolutely. So we really did, again, want to lean into the idea that abortion care is mainstream healthcare and take on, as you mentioned, a recognizable model that can be shown in parallel to a lot of these other D2C healthcare businesses that are are emerging. We wanted it to be very friendly. You know, we picked the name Jane, both because of its historical significance, but because it's also just a friendly person to have their hand on your shoulder throughout your care. And that's the feeling that we're trying to evoke with our brand, but also with the clinical experience that we offer. So yeah, we very much made the decision, do we want to try to stand out? I think as many people making a brand might, do we want to be unique? We said, no, we want to sort of blend in with this mainstream model that that has come to exist. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you had a first year in business in growth. Um, You have since expanded to eight states, Um, but then 2022 happened. We got so much news that sort of shocked and rocked your business and the country. Um, Last May, a leak indicated that the Supreme Court was poised to strike down Roe v. Wade. Um, Then in July, the decision, um, Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, was issued um, and allowed states to begin acting independently on abortion access. What did this do to your business? What was happening from your perspective? So we, of course, saw some pretty dramatic immediate effects and uh, many that uh, have lasted and continue to evolve um, on an ongoing basis. When the decision came down, we were expecting it, both because the memo had leaked in May and also just because we had listened to the hearings in December and they were quite foreboding. Our number one concern was, of course, continuing to keep our patients safe from a clinical but also a legal perspective and the same going for our providers. So we had to make some pretty tough decisions right away. We had hired an intentionally geographically diverse team uh, with folks across the country. We felt that having those perspectives represented was really critical. 
Unfortunately, with the shifting landscape, that's just no longer feasible. Um, we have had to relocate team members and create new policies to ensure that they are only practicing out of safe, safe states. We had to reevaluate some of the ways in which we deliver care to also ensure that patients' data is protected not only from hackers, as had been the original intention when we designed the product, but also from hostile governments, which is a much different problem to solve and one that we've been taking very seriously. An interesting, though, reaction to the restrictions in many of the hostile states was increased protections in many of the more progressive states. We've seen things like shield laws roll out, which say they will protect patients and providers from interstate lawsuits related to, to reproductive health care. And so really understanding those and making sure we could leverage them, again, in our model to ensure that maximum safety for our patients, um, not from a clinical level, because we know that the, the treatments are remarkably safe, but, you know, from from a regulatory one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just mentioned it's, it's not just hackers that you're protecting patients' data from. There was just a report out today from ProPublica, um, you know, stating that Google has access to many of your peers in this in, in abortion care networks um, data. Um, whether that goes as deep as individualized data is a little unclear, but you are not listed on on the list of those sites. Um, you use a third party app for communication between patients and their healthcare providers, right? Did you have that from the start or has that been an evolving process that really secure medical information encrypted? The encryption has been there from day one, um, but we have had to come up with new ways to account for, you know, social media involvement. We need patients to know about the, the, our, our services or we're not very much used. So it's an interesting paradox because we are still very dependent on, on Google, uh, but need to make sure that we're managing any interactions with them uh, as responsibly as we can. And then, of course, thinking uh, around things like what data we do collect and how we retain it has been an, an evolving process as the problems that we're solving for have shifted. And having that sort of the presence online, on social media, I mean, that is part of your mission. That is part of normalizing abortion access, right? We do rely on social media to get the word out. We don't do any paid ads there because of the implications for, for trackers, but we do organic um, content that, you know, we use to help spread information about medication abortion being an option. And we have seen ongoing censorship on many of the platforms related to that content, I think there's been a lot more thoughtful consciousness around it from the platforms as time has gone on. And I hope to see that continue. When we come back, I'll talk with Kiki about how the challenges her company faced taught her a lesson in resilience. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful, growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Talking about hostile states, like, have you faced any lawsuits or any threats from governments or our law enforcement there? Um, have you or your employees? Knocking on wood. Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> 
so you've hit like, I don't know, you can call them hurdles. You could call them walls. You've hit these obstacles sort of time and again. How do you sort of mentally handle that? And and what's your approach to those big blocks? Being completely consumed and focused with the end goal is what helps you get through it and having a team that shares that value. So you always know exactly where you're headed. And I think you should always be willing to be able to push through those walls, but often finding a way to find a path where you don't intersect the wall or where you could find a way to walk around it or climb over it can be incredibly useful instead of trying to fit within an existing framework that's uh, extraordinarily onerous, finding a new framework that works for you and will still allow you to reach that goal can be incredibly valuable. Yeah, it's it's a little different than Uber's approach, right? Which was oftentimes just uh, <laughs> ignore the wall or pretend it's not there until enough, uh, you know, folks in the, in the regulatory, making regulatory decisions uh, see, see the light or see your way. <laughs> Did you ever think like, let's just go ahead and face the music afterward? It's certainly been tempting, right? Like we feel very clear about our values and that some of the laws that we're forced to abide by are completely out of line with those values, as well as just with scientific evidence and standard medical practice. That said to me, like it really is a learning that you need to build trust with your patients and with regulators to win long-term and finding a way to um, do as much as you possibly can while optimizing for long-term survival is, is the route that we've chosen to take. Yeah, because you're only useful if you exist, right? Exactly. So now you are two years old as a company. I usually ask my guests, you know, what was the biggest challenge in the first two (laughs) years? Uh, I mean, we've just gone through (laughs) so many. For you, though, as a leader, um, leading a team of folks working on this mission, like in that leadership role, what what has been the most challenging moment for you or challenging hurdle to get over um, in leading through this? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think maybe I'll start by saying some of the surprises in terms of what's actually been easier uh, than I expected. I think that working on such a purpose-driven mission has really allowed us to recruit incredible people and then allow them to really bring their full selves to work, that in itself creates a lot of trust and passion and cohesion, which has been so useful in creating resilience through these really tough moments. I'd also say that I've been really surprised by the resilience of the team overall. More than half of our team uh, is clinical at this point. Uh, Many of them have been in the movement for decades. And so these moments are really complex and really thorny, and there's a lot to navigate within them. But it's very grounding to remember that this is an ongoing issue. Um, this is perhaps a more extreme manifestation of access restraints than what we've seen in decades in this country. But it's just part of a long history, and so ultimately we just need to hunker down and keep keep fighting. So maybe my surprise there has just been how much I can really lean on the team to, to get through these moments without um, needing to, to shield, you know, from any, any uncomfortable facts. You as a company are kind of well-networked with the other online providers and, and physical providers of abortions, too, um, and advocacy groups in the U.S., but now that 13 states have blocked access to abortion for their residents, um, there's states that still are regulating the dispensary of the abortion pill itself and trying to limit it, even as the FDA opens mm-hmm. it up to pharmacies distributing it. 
Are you engaging in any active lobbying or conversations with lawmakers, either at the state or federal level on this um, or with the FDA? Being more involved in these regulatory conversations is something that we're very interested in and certainly have a lot of fire to get involved with. At the end of the day, we are still, you know, a pretty small startup. I mean, you're only two years old. (laughs) Yes, I know. We've had to sort of intentionally restrain ourselves on that front, to be honest, because I think we'd be interested in doing more there. Where we found we can be most valuable is participating with researchers um, in studies to really uh, just further illustrate how safe telemedicine abortion really is. We did a great partnership with UCSF that will be uh, releasing their results soon. Um, Again, just to, to hammer home the many, many benefits of this model. I hope as we grow, there's more opportunities to participate in those conversations. But for now, that's that's where we focused. That's great about the research. There's another element that strikes me as challenging to be in your space, aside from the, the legal issues, aside from just the growth. Awareness of the combination of pills that you distribute is still not high. How big of a component of what your company does and the mission is just education. And how do you go about that in terms of talking to consumers? Only one in four people know about medication abortion now, even though it's more than half of abortions done in this country off the latest data. So getting that awareness out there is key. I think we found really effective ways to do that through social media so far. And then we really just want everyone to know how incredibly safe it is. Um, it has a lower adverse reaction rate than Tylenol. Been around since 2000, so very well understood and studied at this point. And of course, advancing the idea of telemedicine as a um, really accessible way for many folks to get access to this type of care. Do you feel like folks are still individuals are adverse to telemedicine at all? I feel like um, the pandemic shifted a lot for anyone who did have to engage at the doctor, um, especially early in the pandemic when folks were a little afraid of uh, going out and being there physically. I certainly did. I had a minor ear infection and being able to call a doctor was so new um, and get treatment over the phone was so new for me. But it, it really was so much easier. Are most Americans comfortable with it that you're finding? So I could speak to the the data broadly. And then, of course, the patients we interact with tend to be the ones who, who are comfortable. Um, but yes, there's been a huge uptick in both acceptance of and use of telemedicine that's been persistent, even as brick and mortar doctor's offices have continued to open. In the case of medication abortion, we, of course, believe that in-person care will always continue to be a necessary part of the equation. Telemedicine is not a panacea that's going to solve the access problem in this country. But it is an important supplement. I think there's a number of inconveniences about visiting a doctor's office in any circumstance, but when that doctor's office might be hundreds of miles away or require you know, walking through protesters to get into appointments may not be available, particularly, you know, in the the post-Dobbs times for weeks um, for what is a time-sensitive um, treatment oftentimes, the relative benefits of telemedicine can be much higher. And so I think there's an increasing sort of like a disproportionate willingness to to try it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially for folks who are un- uninsured or underinsured or who's a varying immigration status too, um, you're, you're a good option. Absolutely. We've been able to get our prices down to less than half the national average and um, are now able to offer a sliding scale as well for folks who would like assistance beyond that, in addition to abortion fund partnerships that can fully offset the price for those who need it. Oh, that's great. Over the course of this past tumultuous year, 
you had raised $2.2 million. And then in October, you raised another significant round. What changed about those conversations since Dobbs? I mean, what was it your pitch or was it investors willingness or what changed about those meetings and the fundraising process for you? As you mentioned, we raised a seed round um, in 2021. It ended up being 3.6. We had a we went a little premature on the announcement there. Oh, sorry. A little bit larger than the initial um, amount. So we raised 3.6, um, and then more recently we raised another six. I'd say two main things shifted. One was we were just able to prove the business out. Um, we grew incredibly quickly. Um, the Dobbs announcement accelerated that growth tremendously. We saw an immediate 10x increase in visitors to the site. Demand doubled overnight and has continued to really grow quickly since then. We've been able to do all of this with a sustainable business model as well. We didn't want to be nor think that we could be reliant on external VC funding. And so um, making ourselves sustainable was important from the very beginning. So being able to show a healthy business helps with more traction than, of course, um, in the, the very early days. But also certainly VCs have seen it's impossible to stay neutral um, in the state of the world that we're in right now. History will reflect on you know, what side people fell and there's, I think, been a much more explicit showing of how vast the support for abortion access is. Um, the midterm elections, of course, reflected that very clearly. But even prior to that, we saw companies speaking up, employee, employees demanding employers speak up in a way that we had not seen in prior similar events like SBA. Yeah, it was a movement um, and it still is. Did you see more traditional investors um, being swayed during that time? I, I mean, you said, I know, I remember we spoke um, maybe a year ago and the the investors that you were looking at were, were mostly smaller funds or individuals who were just inherently supportive of your cause. We did see more interest from traditional VCs, but um, I would say we also just saw the emergence of a lot of new VCs who aren't necessarily beholden to some of these more historical conflicts or biases or whatever it might be. Right. And so we were really pleased um, with being able to raise, you know, what we wanted from mission-aligned investors. Oh, that's so interesting. So the the new wave of VCs as fueling some of the growth. That's really, really interesting. Great. So tell me, what is on your agenda now? What is next for Hey Jane? And what are you getting up to this next year? You're in eight states now um, and have providers all over the country that you work with. Yeah, what's next? So we have two big goals for the next year. Um, one is, of course, just to double down on accessibility of medication abortion via telemedicine. We'll be doing that through launching in new states. We have two new states coming up. Um, this quarter, and also increasing ways um, to find financial accessibility options for our patients through insurance, through partnership, et cetera. The other thing that we're very excited about is through really deeply listening to our patients since we've launched, we've built out what we call our complete care model. It combines access to clinical services with custom-fitted emotional support from professionals at the tap of a button, along with community support to connect with peers going through the same thing in the same time during what otherwise may be an isolating moment. With that complete care model, we've seen patient satisfaction scores that are sort of unheard of for medicine and telemedicine as well. We have an NPS of 92. So we're thinking of ways to expand that model to new treatments that are similarly really common, really underserved, and have this emotional impact that we're well-suited to 
um, address. So we just launched a pilot in postpartum depression and anxiety, another huge problem affecting one in three birthing parents, and that only 5% achieve remission from today. So we'll be learning into that, continuing to really listen to our users and hopefully be able to make a meaningful impact there, as well as launching some primary care products because we've seen our patients really want to come back to us for more. So we're looking into things like birth control and infection. Again, it seems like such a marketing challenge um, when you're looking at, say, the issue of postpartum um, healthcare and postpartum depression. How do you market that? (laughs) It's a great question, and it's certainly one that we're still learning, um, but I can tell you some of our initial theses there. There is, of course, traditional D2C marketing. I think, you know, with abortion, people are very aware of a problem that they'd like to solve immediately. Um, Postpartum, we find not to be that way. A lot of people don't realize that what they might be experiencing is something that's worthy of treatment, can be treated. And so I think education um, is is very important on that front. Um, But I also think that clinical partnerships are going to be a really big opportunity within this new product because a lot of providers are detecting postpartum depression and anxiety in their patients, both pediatricians and OBs, and they don't have the resources to treat it. And so being able to take some of those referrals could be, I think, a great way to, to get in touch with those patients. You're launching in in two new states this quarter alone. How do you weigh the benefits of launching in new states with sort of the the legal concerns that you face and also the the strain of doing so? I mean, obviously, there's so much to consider from a regulatory perspective when you're doing a new launch. But obviously, now there are places that you, you simply probably cannot. It's a great question. And there's a few parts of the framework that we think through there. One is overall patient volume. We want to be able to reach the most patients as we can with each new state launch, because as you mentioned, each one is pretty complicated. We look at the regulatory complexity of each and initially we'll prioritize those that are most compatible with our existing model. Something, though, that's been more important recently is also proximity to low-access states. So um, Illinois, Colorado, New Mexico, for example, um, were largely motivated by the fact that we knew patients would need to be traveling from some of those low-access states um, surrounding them in order to get care. And we think telemedicine, especially with you know pharmacy dispensing coming online soon, is a really good option for some of that cross-state travel need. This is actually something that's been studied fairly well during the last two years. It's not just the states that now have restrictions to abortion access. It's states that lack clinics, that lack medical care, that folks um, are living in healthcare deserts. Um, and we've seen folks, you know, traveling across state lines for this care for, for quite a long time now. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, and I think another component that's often overlooked in the conversation now is with the surge of cross-state travelers, even to states that have historically had more access they're being affected as well because the clinics, it's the same number of clinics trying to treat often multiples more people. Um, And so we see significant increases in appointment delays there as well. What advice would you have for other founders who are thinking of getting into a line of business or a business that is questionably legal, that has, has either a lot of complex regulations involved in it or maybe it looks like it might not be, you know, able to operate in their dream way at the, at the moment. Um, what kind of advice would you have there? I guess to that, I would say, you know, you have to feel passionately enough about the outcome to be re- willing to really do your homework. I 
never thought I would enjoy reading through these laws in as much detail as I did. But because, um, you know, I was so motivated to see this come to life, it became really interesting to really learn how to decipher some of these things. Being flexible and open-minded, understanding the goal, but being flexible and open-minded about the way in in which it might manifest so that you can stay creative as you understand the laws um, to remain compliant, because that is important, while still achieving the outcome you're looking for. Yeah. I'm surprised your first hire wasn't uh, like a general counsel. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't afford it. (laughs) We've gotten really, really good legal support, um, often pro bono, as well as some, some great paid support as well. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Kiki, for joining me today. Thank you. After speaking with Kiki, what stuck with me is that she's clearly still in the throes of growing her company, of meeting customer demand, and in a really important area at a really important time. She barely seemed to dwell on the multiple crises her business has faced because the whole operation is still in fast growth mode, charging ahead into new states and trying to expand options for payment and access to more individuals. And it was sort of surprising, but makes complete sense, that she said the weight of the company's mission of providing abortion access brings really impassioned employees to her team and that the mission itself creates trust, passion, and cohesion amongst the team. They surprised her with their resilience through the tough moments. That really illustrates the power of believing strongly in your mission and your purpose as a business. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you can spare a moment, please do leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our show by dropping me a note at whatiknow at inc.com. Our producer, who was also inspired to get into his career through a dystopian possibility, though he's never told me what it was, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.